Turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 3. See, you don't need those words up on the screen, do you? Sounded great. Love hearing the congregation sing. Sing to the Lord. Uh, Last week we heard a wonderful message. uh, Pastor Greg on the new birth or regeneration. Entitled from religion to regeneration. And that whole story of Nicodemus and his encounter with our Lord and Savior. Uh, What a wonderful message it was. And we saw uh, a great picture of what was happening with this apostate religion, Judaism, back in that day. And how one of their greatest teachers, historically Nicodemus was one of their greatest teachers. How he um, came with question after question and had no real understanding of the truth of the Scriptures that he had access to. His eyes hadn't been opened to those truths, and Jesus told him as much. Because for that to happen, you have to be born again. You have some understanding of the truths of God's Word. You have to be have your mind and your heart open to His truths. And what had happened then, and back in those days in the first century, the pastors of Israel, the, the teachers of that religion, they, they had ceased to feed the people the Word of God. I'm not sure when that stopped, but they, they stopped feeding the people the Word of God. Instead of they created this nation of of laws and rules and regulation that just bound people up. And they weren't free in their religion. And it was and the 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 the, the pastors or the the priest, uh, the Nicodemuses of that day were leading blind people. So it was the blind leading the blind and both of them were falling in the ditch. You think I made that up, but I didn't. Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 14. Oh, that's not on the screen either. Okay, this is going to be a challenge. I had never crossed my mind. But Jesus said in Matthew 15, let them alone. They're talking about... He's talking to his disciples about the Pharisees. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. That's what was happening. And you know, sadly, that the successors of Nicodemus, the Frank Cones of the world and Greg Smiths of the world and others, the successors of Nicodemus in, in, in 
age, throughout age, throughout age, the successors of Nicodemus are much more numerous than the successors of St. Peter. Just turn on your TV and you'll understand what I mean. And when you stray from the Word, you get what we have today. You get a sinful church. You get confusion with regard to the world, Word. And most importantly, you get false conversions. The church is full of lost people. So Jesus shines the light on the light of truth on Nicodemus. Tells him that he must be born again. And that's what we call regeneration. And Pastor Greg did show a slide last week that defined that. Regeneration is the act of God by which He imparts eternal life to those who are dead in their sin, thus making them His children. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus that salvation is a divine work of God. And it doesn't depend on you at all. And you who heard that sermon that week, uh, last week or, or who read this passage, you, you, you cannot argue that this is not true because it is so very clear here at the beginning of John 3. And J.C. Ryle reminds us that a lesson about regeneration is closely followed by a lesson on justification. And that's what we have here today. Or at least that's what we'll begin today. This may go a couple of weeks. And I'm going to start at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Now, let me stop right there. If you have a red-letter edition, chances are that verse 16 and following are in red letters. Or if you just have a black-letter Bible, uh, this passage might have quotes around it. Um, There's a question as to whether verse 16 starts John's commentary on what Jesus just said. Whether John uh, 3.16 is actually uh, the words of Jesus. I tend to think that these are the words of John, not the words of Jesus, beginning at verse 16. There's really no consequence either way. Remember, I've said over and over, if you do have a red-letter edition, beware of the red letters lest you think they're more important than all the others. It's all God's Word. So there's really no consequence whether this is John's commentary. I mean, he's, John's old when he writes this. Um, I, I, no offense, but he's old when he writes this. And several times in the Gospel of John, you'll see where he's, he, 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 he's quoting 
Jesus or somebody else, and then he just kind of strays off on his own commentary of what's going on. It happens at other times as well. Plus, here, verse 16, he goes to the past tense. Uh, There are some changes. They're more similar to John's writing. He goes to the past tense. Um, He calls Jesus the only begotten son. Jesus nowhere calls himself that. And uh, so, and there are other ways to argument that argue that this is John. But regardless whether you have the red letters or not, there's really no consequence. This is the word of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And we'll stop right there. It's the Word of God. And before we go much further, I, I need to address one thing, and that's these parallel strands we see in Scripture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We had to get there sometime. Pastor Greg talked about it a little bit last week. How do you reconcile reconcile these parallel strands of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Can they be reconciled? The short answer is no. They're always parallel throughout Scripture. They're always parallel. And we see it over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we can't address every single place. But let me just, I want to now tell you what I mean by this. In Matthew 11, you can turn there. I'll give you time to turn today. It's a Bible um, in the chair in front of you, possibly, if you need one. Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and... Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. See that? That's God's sovereign will. Only those who know the Son are those whom the Son chooses to reveal Himself to. God's sovereign will. You can't know the Son unless the Son chooses to reveal Himself. Then look at the next line. Verse 28. Come to me, all. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all. There's this call for everyone to come to Jesus. And at the same time, no one can come to Jesus 
unless he reveals himself to them. God's sovereign work in revealing himself and then that open call for everyone to come. We see this in the Old Testament and we see it in the New Testament as well. All over Scripture, these two strands of divine sovereignty and man's responsibility, and you can't reconcile it. God's Word teaches it. We receive it by faith as we receive him by faith. It's in John Three as well. Nicodemus is entirely responsible to believe. And we see that in John 3.16. Whoever believes in him. God loved the world. And whoever believes in him. But we see also that you are not born again unless God does it. You can't do it. The two parallel truths that we can't fully comprehend. We just know it's truth. Just quickly, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And in that sermon, what does he say? He says that this, we're going through, the life of Jesus Christ was according to the predetermined plan of God. But you nailed him to the cross. All of this was God's predetermined plan. God's sovereign will is all over this. Even the cross. But you did it. God's sovereign will and man's responsibility. We see this over and over in Scripture and we grapple with it and we want to reconcile and it can't be reconciled. But the truth is sure that the Bible will not allow mankind to blame God for our depravity, for the plight of humanity. It's our responsibility. And so we move from the story of regeneration to justification. And we're going to see in the, today and next week and maybe beyond um, more elements of this this new birth. We see today the sacrifice of, of, of Christ. And then we see the plan of God. And then we see the faith of man in these verses of Scripture that I read for you. First, the sacrifice of Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Pastor Greg mentioned these verses at the end of his message last week. It's a little it's like a riddle, a little riddle that a little riddle that Jesus sticks at the end of this conversation with um, with um, Nicodemus. There's some sort of transition going here. But it's clear to us what he's saying. Nicodemus didn't have uh, the luxury of the Old and New Testament. We do, and we can look back and we see what he means. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he's talking about Numbers um, chapter 21. The, the, the term for that pole with the serpent on it is Nehushtan. That, that's what it's called, Nehushtan. And that, that's the serpent wrapped around the pole. 
And it's a picture of the Holy Jesus. And you think, how can that be? Well, let me read that passage for you. Turn to Numbers 21. If you have your Bible, verses 4 and following. From Mount Hor, uh, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Oh, those Israelites, complaining, grumpy Israelites. For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. He's thought, they're talking about the manna, the, the food God's provided them. We loathe this worthless food. Now, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And that is what Jesus is talking about here at the end of his conversation with Nicodemus. That's the story he's referring to. Serpents, you know, are used in Scripture uh, generally uh, throughout the Bible to, to represent evil. And we see it in Genesis. We see it in Revelation. But this serpent, that Moses' serpent here in, in Numbers 21, is made of bronze. That's a metal, actually, that's... Ref- uh, related to the word judgment. Um, it's related to judgment throughout the Bible because bronze, to be created, has to pass through the fires of judgment. So the bronze serpent does speak of sin, but of sin that's been judged. And in the same way, Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus, who was not a sinner, became sin for us on the cross, and our sin was judged in Him. The bronze serpent is a picture of sin that's been judged and dealt with, first of all. Now, you see that. You see that picture another way. It's the rod of Asclepian. The rod of Asclepian um, is, is the, the medical Symbol. Uh, you doctors here, Sam Hazel's here today, and Wendell and others. Um, the, the rod with the one serpent wrapped around it. Uh, it's been related to healing um, and medicine. And, and what happened, apparently, um, Greek mythology sort of bought into uh, this story about Moses in number 21. The people were saved not by doing anything. The people were saved by what? Looking onto the serpent. They had to trust that something as seemingly as foolish as just looking on a stick with a serpent wrapped around it was sufficient to save them. And surely, some, par- some 
surely died because they thought it was just too foolish a thing to look on that pole with a bronze serpent wrapped around it. Isaiah says in Isaiah 45:22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to me, turn to me. You know, we might be willing to do a hundred things to earn our salvation, but God commands us to do only one thing. Look to Him. Remember that even Jesus, even though Jesus bore our sins, He never became a sinner. Even His becoming sin for us was a holy, righteous act of love. He became sin. He wasn't a sinner. He became sin. And becoming sin for us, taking on our sin, was just a holy, righteous act of love. And He was lifted up too. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus was lifted up too. And we see that referred to in the crucifixion, but we also see that same word used in his ascension as well. And that meaning of being lifted up is so important. His suffering and his exaltation. Lifted up in both ways. So as the serpent... Lifted on the pole was an image of the very thing that poisoned the Israelites. You got that? The serpent lifted up on the pole was an image of the very thing that poisoned the Israelites. So Jesus, who in himself had no sin, yet was made sin for us and crucified in the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul tells us, and he was counted sin. The bronze serpent was a serpent without poison, and Jesus was a man without sin. And as, it's a great thing about it, as the Israelites escaped the sting of death, when they looked on that bronze serpent, the only way for us to escape the sting of death is to look to Him on the cross. And one more thing about it, it's so wonderful. When the Israelite looked on the bronze serpent, not only that did he not die of the wounds that he received, because it said if you've been stung by the serpent, then look. You notice that? And so not only did they not die of his wounds, but they, they recovered to health. So the one who looks on Jesus Christ in faith not only escapes hell and escapes condemnation, but receives all the glories of heaven itself. Eternal life. And so Jesus compares his eventual crucifixion to Moses lifting up this serpent. So people would be saved from perishing by believing in Jesus. You see, without redemption of sin, regeneration would be meaningless. So the story has to continue. 
The new birth provides both. The second thing we see in our text today is the plan of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. I've struggled with this all week long. I am such a sinner. And preaching the glories of Scripture weekly gives me a wonderful privilege. But this, this verse is awesome. <laughs> Just, I can't even get past the first three words. For God so loved. Frank Cohn. You. And it's long been celebrated as the, 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 the most succinct and powerful declaration of the gospel. There are 31,373 verses in the Bible. And it may be, at least in the area of evangelism, it may be the most popular single verse. But it's also the most misused. It's the most taken out of context verse you will see. Luther called it the Bible in miniature. S. Lewis Johnson tells the story about Luther that a fortnight before he passed away, two weeks before he passed away, he repeated the text of John 3.16 with ecstasy. And he added, what Spartan saying can be compared with this wonderful brevity? It is the Bible in itself. And then in Luther's dying hours, he repeated the verse three times in Latin. Spurgeon preached on John 3.16 once a year. For the simple reason that he knew that he couldn't say anything unusual or different And it helped confirm in Spurgeon the power of the Word of God. He said when individuals were converted through the preaching of John 3.16, it reminded him that men were not converted by virtue of his clever words or the new things that he could think up and was able to say. Now, you've probably heard this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. Henry Morehouse was a young British preacher when, when D.L. Moody met him. D.L. Moody met him in England. Never heard him preach. But he said to Morehouse as he was leaving England, If you ever get to the States, let me know and I'll, you can come preach at my church, Chicago. So a long period of time went. went by, and, and Moody was sure when he told him, hey, I'll probably never see this guy again. I, you know, I'm not, how's he going to preach in my church? I've never heard him preach, but, you know, I was being nice. He gets a phone call from New York City. I'm in the States. When do you want me to come? 
Spurgeon's just a little bit shocked, but this is early in the week. He realizes that, um, well, I'm going to be out of town next Sunday. Maybe I should ask him to preach. So he invited Henry Morehouse to come to Chicago and preach for him the next Sunday. um, Moody goes out of town. And um, he comes back on uh, Friday of that week. And he asked his wife, he says, well, how did Morehouse do? How did the young British preacher do? And she said, oh, he did great. He's a better preacher than you. (laughs) He said, oh, oh, really? Um, What's he been preaching on? She said, John 3.16. And he said, oh, really? And she said, yes. And he's been preaching on it all week. He preached on it Sunday. And then he preached Monday. And then he preached again Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, all on John 3.16. Well, Moody thought, well, I've got to go hear this guy preach. And he said, he's preaching tonight. She told him he's preaching tonight too. So he go, Moody goes to his own church there in Chicago to hear Morehouse preach. And Morehouse stands up and he says, you know, I've been struggling all day with what passage to preach on. And I just can't find anything better than John 3.16. So tonight, again, I'm going to preach on John 3.16. And Moody said at the end of that sermon, he said, not until that sermon did I fully understand God's love for me. We also, in this verse, have a great similarity between this, John 3.16, and Romans 8.32. If you turn to that, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Many preachers and commentators over the years have connected these two verses and note the similarities between these verses. This verse is based, the Romans 8 verse is based on the Old Testament text of Isaac and Abraham, the offering up of Isaac by Abraham. And there's this similarity in John 3.16 of the father who gives the son and ultimately gives him to the cross. In Romans 8, Paul's thoughts are simply that the ones for whom Christ died may expect to have all the other blessings of spiritual life as well. Do you see that? Did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So God won't spare all the blessings of the spiritual life. We see that in this verse and in John 3.16. They each speak of the purpose of the coming of the Son. Uh, Both verses speak of the intent of of his coming both speak of the love of god and the gift of the son and the results that come from that that those for whom christ died have all 
the spiritual blessings of life as well. We have the blessing of repentance. We have the blessing of faith. We have the blessing of effectual grace. We have the blessing of the eternal life. And all the other things that come with the saving ministry of Jesus Christ. We see that in both these verses. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Repentance and faith and grace and eternal life and everything that goes with that. So that's John 3.16. First we see in this verse the act of God. Secondly, we see the result of God's love. And thirdly, we see the purpose. Now, we're not getting through all those today. We'll just start with the act. What's the act? God's great love. Well, there are three phrases, so I figured, at least in the English, there are three phrases. I figured I'd break it down into three parts. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's how we'll look at them. First, though, you need to notice that first word, for. Gar uh, is used here. This, this points to why this verse is misused so much. For, or therefore, always connects what's about to be said to what has already been said. This is, this is the truth we see in this particular passage. For God so loved. This verse is connected with what's preceded it. Even if we connect it with just the, 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 the very last part, the, the verse 15 there, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. And so, if we, if we just stop there, that verse 15, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. We're left wondering why. Why whoever believes in Him is going to have? Why are they going to have eternal life? We'll just be stuck with that question if He doesn't go on. Why? For God so loved the world. And loved this world so much, He gave His Son. It's connected. It's always connected when you see that word. Plus, it affects our witnessing. If we use this verse and only this verse in our witnessing, and not anything before it or not anything after it, we've got big problems. If we say, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, and we stop there in our witnessing, we're not sharing the entire gospel. Because in verse 18, it's important in your witnessing that you speak the truth in love, but that people understand, you know what? If you don't believe, you will go to hell and spend an eternity there. And the reason that you do believe, God just, Jesus just explained it to Nicodemus. The reason you do believe, 
He's opened your heart. He's opened your mind. You've been born again. He birthed you again. And only God can do that. Why is eternal life a provision for dying men? Why is there a provision of eternal life? Because of what God and Christ have done. Loved the world so much He gave His Son. So look, those who believe are the ones Jesus tells Nicodemus have been born again. Those who believe are those who have been born again. You cannot believe unless you have been given life. You, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, you are dead in your trespasses. Can you make yourself alive? No. You cannot believe unless you have been given life. And if you've been born again, then you will believe and then you will spend an eternity with Christ. We have to address this for several reasons. Because of those of us who call ourselves Reformed and affirm the doctrines of grace, we tend to emphasize God's role in birthing people. The Arminians will tend to stress the whosoever, our whoever, which puts the emphasis on human freedom and, and the decision-making process in salvation. This verse can't be used in, in, in strictly in the Arminian sense that salvation is available to all based on anything they might be able to do simply because they can't birth themselves. And if not born again, they will not believe. But after saying all that, it does still reflect the tension of those parallel truths I was talking about earlier. You get that? You get it? That is yes, and this is no. Back to God's act of love. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 3, 17 and 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And one of the most descriptive songs we used to sing, we don't sing it anymore, maybe we should. Could we with ink the ocean fill, or were the sky of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, and strong, it shall forevermore endure 
the saints and angels song. What a glorious song. The love of God. And then we learn the object of God's love. For God so loved the world. The word there is cosmos. He does love the world. It's hard to know what all he means by that. We know that in Genesis, he saw everything that he made and it was good. He loves the world. He loved all of creation. He loves it all and he loves everyone. He might not love everyone the same way, but he loves everyone. Back in um, John chapter 1, verse 9, when I preached on this at the beginning of this series, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. What does he mean by world here? He means not just the Jews. The Jews knew that God loved them. In fact, the Jews knew that they were the only ones God loved. But that wasn't the truth. Now He loves all. Now He freely loves all. Uh, Greeks and Romans and slaves and free and women and children. The whole world, not just Israel. God Loves the world. J.C. Ryle says, The love here is not that special love with which the Father regards the elect, but that mighty pity and compassion with which He regards the whole race of mankind. Its object is not merely the little flock which He has given to Christ from all eternity, but the whole world of sinners without any exception. There's a deep sense in which God loves the world. All whom He has created, He regards with pity and compassion. Their sins He cannot love, but He loves their souls. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. The object of God's love, the world. And we must understand biblical love and that God hates wickedness. God hates evil. God hates sin. And the end of everyone who continues in sin and wickedness and evil will be their own destruction. He doesn't love the world so that everyone in the world will ultimately be saved. He doesn't love the world so that everyone in the world will finally experience salvation. In fact, we can make a biblical case that He doesn't love everyone in the world equally. Remember Jesus in John 17? We'll get to that in a couple of years. Remember Jesus in John 17 when He, he says, I'm not praying for all of them. I'm just praying for My disciples. Those that you've given to me. Even he makes the separation. He loves the world, but not everyone in the world equally. 
Maybe that's the main point here. He loved the world that He gave His Son to be a Savior. The Savior of all who believed. And His love is offered to everyone freely. His love is offered to everyone fully. His love is offered to everyone honestly. His love is offered to everyone without reservation. But only through that one channel of Christ's redemption. There's no other way. No one comes to the Father but through Him. This is the God of the Bible. So great. So infinite. So vast in His being. What right do I have to command His love? What right do I have to deserve His love? I don't have any. I'm such a sinner and I do nothing but just fall face down at the mercy of God. Looking to Him so that I might be redeemed. God is, you know, God doesn't need me. He's perfectly, God is perfectly fine if He never ever created anything. Why did He create us to cause Him all this trouble? He didn't need anything. God doesn't need our love. He didn't need to create the world that He says He loves. But He did. And He does love. And He does love me. Frank Cohn and you. Saved sinners. And He loves His people in a much more special way than He loves the world in a general sense. Praise the Lord. So the act of, the act here is God's great love for the world. Next week we'll look at the results of that love. Let's pray. In a moment we'll close our service with a song about love. If you know the words, you're welcome to sing along. And I pray that you've experienced the love of Christ in a specific way. And that is that you had your heart and mind open to the truths we speak about today. If you have questions about any of this, we encourage you to make your way to the back during this song. Encourage you to ask questions. There'll be people back there to pray with you. However, God leads you during this time. Simply respond to that great truth that you are loved by Him. Father, take these next few moments. Move us from where we are right now to where you want us to be. And we give you all the praise, all the honor, all the glory for the great truths in your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.